to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now, if you do not have this verse memorized, I commend it to you. There are several verses in the Bible that I think are, 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 are needed to be memorized. This is one of them. So, But let me read it for you. This is the word of God. God said, I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the he- head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Amen. May God add his blessings to this word. Please be seated. Again, I say that you should memorize this because this is a well-known verse that is called by virtually everyone the Proto-Evangelium. Proto-Evangelium, it's uh, two Latin words meaning it's the first preaching of the gospel. Here's the first time the gospel is given to us And you'll see that it comes immediately after man's fall into sin. Uh, God wasted absolutely no time at all to hold out his grace to, to build up the hope of fallen sinners. When Adam and Eve expected death, God showed them mercy. Yes, now God, of course, had to judge them. He he placed curses on the serpent, on the the woman and the man and the earth. He, He cursed them because of their disobedience. But again, even as he's cursing them and judging them, he stirs up man's hope. God would create enmity between the woman and the serpent, between her seed and his seed. This enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman will eventually come to an end with the final result being the crushing of the serpent's head once and for all. Now again, next week we'll come back and we will uh, begin the study of Revelation. but, But really, as I mentioned, this verse is key to understanding that book of Revelation. In fact, this one verse is so full of information, so full of hope, that actually books, commentaries, and commentaries could be written on it. And there is a a very real sense in which every gospel sermon is an exposition of this one verse. And because of that, I have to confess that I feel particularly inadequate this morning um, to stand here preaching this message because, well, I think that every gospel preacher feels his defect when he's before such a tremendous verse as this. Again, this is not just the key to understanding the book of Revelation. It's a key to understanding the Bible as a whole. It is the crucial ingredient to understanding basic human history as it has developed through millennia now through the present time up until the time when Christ returns. And so again, we come back to this passage and we say that God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, I read a couple of interesting commentaries on this verse. When I'm in the Old Testament, I do like to look at how the Jewish thought has developed. And... 
several other passages, although there was a couple of liberal Christian, or quote-unquote Christian, <laughs> commentaries that I read as well. But it's interesting how many of those commentaries looked at this verse and said, oh, this verse is simply establishing a biological antagonism between snakes and people. <laughs> and in fact, uh, I read an article that was not a commentary on this. It was uh, from a psychology journal that was written several years ago. But in that uh, article, it claimed that it was, in fact, the very fear of snakes that actually drove pre-human evolution. Uh, our ancient ancestors were so terrified of snakes, they evolved in order to escape, avoid, and destroy snakes. <laughs> This uh, irrational fear of snakes has been genetically passed down from generation to generation from our earliest pre-human ancestors. Now, of course, you have to buy the, the unbiblical view of evolution to hold to that theory. But ironically, the article that uh, Psychology Journal says that we are what we are today as human beings because of snakes. But I'm here to tell you that this is not so much about a biological hatred between two species. This is spiritual enmity. The context of Genesis 3 even shows that this is not simply a snake. Uh, that's a very important thing to say because, you see, there are critics of the Bible who will look at Genesis 3.1 and says, oh, a serpent, a snake, talked. And we know that snakes can't talk. So we can't take Genesis 3 as history. This is mythological. This is allegorical. Nonsense. This is clearly not merely a snake. The context itself shows us this. This is the devil using the snake to accomplish nefarious purposes. And by the way, let me just say, I know this because the Bible is its best interpreter. Amen. And you can turn to a place like Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9 and, and read that this, what the snake is. There in Revelation 12, 9, it says, And the great dragon was thrown down. Now, who is this great dragon? The serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. Clearly then, this is not merely a snake. This is the devil. And the enmity is not between snakes and people, even though I have a, a terrifying fear of snakes. <laughs> but this is not about snakes and people. This is about Satan and mankind. But again, who is this serpent? Who is this dragon, this devil? Who is this Satan? Well, of course, the Bible actually has a lot to tell us about him. For example, you go back again, just a couple of verses before our text. Genesis 3 verse 1 tells us that the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. That description shows that, that the devil is crafty. He is sly and cunning. He is subtle in his speech. He knows how well to construct an argument, how to deceive with flattery and half-truths. In fact, 
in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. There the apostle Paul writes, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. You see, again, Satan knows how to disguise himself as a friend to truth. He uses half-truths, well-reasoned arguments that sound more true than true itself. And, and of course, he's not alone. alone. He has a retinue of followers, both who are demonic and of human nature. And he trains his followers in his crafty arts of deception. They all know how to look good. They know how to play the part well. But they're liars and they are deceivers. Matthew chapter 4 tells us that uh, this serpent, this Satan, is, is so confident in his ability to deceive that he even came to Jesus in the wilderness to tempt him. Talk about pride. Hiding behind the light, he used scriptures to tempt Jesus. Here in Genesis 3, he spoke God's word to Eve. He spoke God's word to Christ. And he speaks God's word even to this very day. But he always twists the meaning of God's word to accomplish evil purposes, that he takes the truth and he makes it into a lie. In fact, when Jesus describes Satan in, in John's gospel, chapter 8, verse 44, there he said about Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Every lie that is in the universe comes from ultimately him. He teaches us how to lie. He is the father of lies. Satan plunged the human race into this realm of physical, spiritual, and eternal death as he murdered mankind through his lies. His lies are his weapon of choice. And he continues in that course of, de of deception through any means possible. And so again, in order to affect his murderous way, he often appears to be God's friend, an angel light. And again, you can see the wisdom in that. If Satan came against you aggressively, You'd be repelled. But what happens when you don't see him as a terrifying, threatening enemy? What if the devil comes in disguise as a good friend? See, that's the way he came to Eve. Oh, Eve, I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you find your great potential. I'm here to, to lift you up. And to project you forward so that you will be better than what you are. Eve, I'm your friend. Believe me and trust me. And again, this is his preferred way of dealing with all of God's saints. 
Satan's power of deceit are shrewd enough to fool even those who are well-versed and dedicated to the study of Scripture. This is why it's important, friends, to pray for our seminaries and those men who teach in those seminaries. Because if Satan can deceive teachers in such a manner as to create in them a belief that they are walking in the truth when they're holding to a lie, then he can destroy the church, can't he? When, when he can hold out the blessings of academia as a great reward, then he can easily knock people into darkness. And by the way, this tactic of him appearing as God's friend is found throughout the scriptures. Perhaps one of the more famous places, you'll find it in Job chapter 1 and 2. Remember, if you ever read that, those chapters, you will see that Satan, when he's first introduced to us, he appears with the sons of God. Satan was with the angelic throng who reported their activity to God. And it was in that capacity as a son of God, as an angel of light, as it were, he came before the Almighty. And he came before God as God's friend, as his colleague, as his comrade. And remember what he alleged? God, I'm here to help you. You put all this confidence in Job. But don't you know what Job is really like? Job is actually insincere. I'm telling you the truth that Job is insincere about his worship of you. You see, I'm your friend, God. What a liar he is. He had no interest in Job except to destroy him. In Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1, Satan stood before the Lord to also accuse um, Joshua, the high priest. He said, look at his dirty rags. Look at his clothes. They're all filthy. His accusations appear as if he really cares that God's commandments are being broken. That's why Satan so wryly called him Saint Satan. <laughs> and you know this. You've experienced this. He tempts you to sin and you stupidly, foolishly fall into his traps and you, you, you sin against God. And then what does he do? He begins to condemn you. Kick you down even further. He comes in pious garb but he's there only to torture you. That's why Peter wrote, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be careful of him. He's a liar. He's a murderer. That's the devil, a formidable foe. And my friends, listen, if he had such great success in the early days of creation, how much more power does he now have with centuries now to perfect his craft of deception and murder? Well, here in Genesis chapter 3, Moses tells us that Satan's work is not yet finished. He began his work in the Garden of Eden, but he continues it on from generation to generation to generation. And again, this is important to understand. Because this is the only explanation of why the world is as it is today. Why does the world have its wars? 
and its aggressive takeovers. And if there isn't war, why are there violent crimes being perpetrated in our streets? Why do so many marriages fail and end in divorce? Why do so many fornicators seek to cover up their sin by ending the life of that unborn child? Or, or, seek, or why do selfish people seek abortion as a way of ridding themselves of an inconvenience? Why the poverty and the sadness of this world? Why all the depressions and the oppressions that, that plague this world? You know, there are so many advancements in technology and medicine. We can end in a lot of suffering, but why doesn't it? Why aren't men better than they are? That's a good question. Genesis 3.15 answers it. I, I, I confess that I actually do like reading Carl Sagan. Uh, he's, he certainly wasn't a believer, but his writings are fascinating, and he had a, a, a nice way with words, I think. But uh, anyway, in one of his books, Carl Sagan, I thought this was pretty funny. He pointed out the ar- irony of uh, the plaque that uh, was sent to the moon on Apollo 11. On that plaque, President Nixon signed it. It says, we come in peace for all mankind. So this plaque was sent to the moon. We come in peace for all mankind. And Carl Sagan pointed out the irony of that because while President Nixon signed that plaque, he also signed an order for more bombs to be blasted in Southeast Asia. You talk about irony, peace, Sagan commented, if we continue to accumulate only power and not wisdom, we will surely destroy ourselves. Even an unbeliever can see that there's something wrong with human nature and the way we deal with one another. But why? Why? Why does men, do men act like this way? What explains the brokenness of our nature? Well, again, The problem, or the answer to the problem, is right here. You understand that when Satan deceived mankind into rebelling against God, mankind then was brought under Satan's power and dominion. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 tells us that Satan is the God of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He is the God of this age. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul then calls him the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience. And then in chapter 6, verse 12 of Ephesians, he says that our warfare is, is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And in Colossians chapter 1, and verse 14, again, Paul there points out that we are saved from the domain of darkness. And from these four verses, we see that Satan is the prince. He's the power. He is the ruler of this great domain and kingdom of darkness and wickedness. In fact, Paul says he is the God of this age. And this God, this ruler, this prince governs with terrible, oppressive power that blinds men 
to the truth of the gospel. He vomits out lie after lie after lie. And these lies, again, look more true than truth itself. Now, it's, it's sad. But men walk around complaining about the state of the world with its politics and its various programs. And they sigh under the, the weight of sorrow and unhappiness. And so men, men today, they, they, they wish they could be wealthy or healthy. And they don't recognize their real problem. They think their problem is, if, is in politics. Their problem is that we just don't have enough knowledge in medicine. We just don't have enough knowledge. We just don't have enough education. We're not strong enough. Enough hasn't been discovered yet. Man sees his problem as, as being unhappy. But his real problem is that he is under the control of the devil. And that mankind is caught in his draconic talents. And all the religions and all the philosophies that were ever constructed, they're all kind of wrong-headed because they're trying to answer the wrong questions. They all ask, how ultimately can I be happy? But the real question they need to ask, how can I escape the devil's influence? How can I be rescued from Satan's power and dominion? That's the real question. Satan has brought us into this realm of darkness and sin. And unless I leave that realm, unless I leave that kingdom, I will be forever cast into further darkness and misery. And the question is now for us, how can I be taken out of it? How can I escape the fate that this evil domain will come to? How can I break out of these chains of darkness? How do I get free from impending judgment? Jesus said something rather amazing. I hope you hear what he says here. Whoever commits sin is the slave to sin. And in that he says there, I cannot free myself. I'm a captive slave. I'm in chains that are too strong for me. I cannot break free on my own. You know, the Old Testament, especially like in the book of Isaiah, but in other places, the, the Psalms, they use the, the slavery of Israel under Egypt as a picture of spiritual enslavement. And you, you see that picture, don't you? The people of Israel were oppressed, made to serve a terrible master, Pharaoh, and there was no escaping it. There was nothing they can do about their slavery condition. They just had to endure this slavery. They were not even powerful enough to revolt against the Pharaoh. What they needed was a Moses to come and rescue them. Well, here we're seeing something rather amazing. You see, Satan is even more powerful and more oppressive than Pharaoh. And for us to be rescued from under that power and under that realm, we need a savior. We need someone to come in and, and vanquish the ruler and, and, and the, uh, to, to kill the prince of the dark kingdom. But, but since this power, this oppression was greater than Pharaoh, we need a greater than Moses. 
And that's what Genesis 3.15 promises. A savior who comes from the woman. God declares, I will put enmity. Isn't that wonderful? I will do this. The, the rescue doesn't come from the ideas and the programs of men. It comes from the God who has all power to perform his vows. He is the one who will bring about this deliverance because no one else can. Satan's power and his craft are so subtle, so powerful, that it takes nothing less than the power of God to vanquish him. But notice God's way of defeating Satan. It's through the weak and humble seed of the woman. And not only that, we're told something else in our text, that the seed of the woman will first be hurt. The seed of the woman will be crushed by the seed of the serpent. But it is in fact through his suffering that he conquers the serpent. And from Genesis 3.15 all the way through the Bible, all the way through human history to, to the book of Revelation, we see God creating this enmity. It's being worked out. It's being worked out, my friend. And, and it's worked out through great and bloody conflict. This enmity, though, will ultimately be between Satan and Jesus. We saw that in the cross. But before it gets to Jesus, there will be this conflict between godly and ungodly people of the world. Satan will stir up ungodly men, and he will use them to persecute the saints who trust in God's promises. And so... From 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, we see the reality. All, all, everyone who desires to live God in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's just the promise of Scripture. And, and we see that even in the early days. In Genesis chapter 4, for example, you can read about this enmity between true brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain, the seed of the woman, as it were, he killed his brother. The seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent strikes at the heel of the seed of the woman. But there's victory. There's victory. Because God raised up Seth. Genesis 4.25, Eve says, after, after uh, Abel's death, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. But then, in ch chapter 24, you read about how Cain... And, and his descendants, you, you read about their genealogies leading up to the boasting of Lamech and his extreme wickedness. And then in chapter 5 of Genesis, you read about the sons of Seth and how they began to call upon the name of the Lord until another Lamech gives birth to Noah, who finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah is persecuted, he is mocked, but he's saved in the ark. Then there's another conflict between Ishmael and Isaac. And again, you, you go on further and we read about that, that conflict between Pharaoh and Moses, Egypt and Israel. And Israel is set free through Egypt's defeat. Then there's the battle of Goliath and David. It goes on and on and on and on until you come to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. When the fullness of time came, 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Why does Paul make mention of a woman being born of a woman? It points us back to Genesis 3.15. He's born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, so that we would receive the adoption of sons. But that enmity was increased in Jesus' life. Herod, even while Jesus was a baby, tried to kill him in Bethlehem. Now look at the clashes between Jesus and the proud Pharisees. Jesus in John chapter 5 or John chapter 8 even calls the Pharisees sons of their father, the devil, seed of the serpent, fighting the seed of the woman. When Satan raised up the whole world against Christ, Luke 22, verse 3 tells us that, that Satan entered into the heart of Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, to betray Jesus. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they all plotted, they all wrangled, they all got false confessions. Like their father, the liar, they got false confessions, they got lies to hand them over to Pilate. Pilate didn't stand up against them. He ordered Jesus to be nailed to a cross. And there Jesus was on the cross. His back ripped open. Plate of thorns on his head. Nailed to a cross. Dying and bleeding. It looked like Satan won the day. Oh, Satan and his demons. The Pharisees, the scribes. They were all dancing. Enjoying and jubilation. We won, we won, we won. Hallelujah, we won, they said. Christ is dead. He's buried. Ha ha. They put the seal of Rome against that gravestone, thinking that Rome's power could at least control him. Colossians 2 verse 15 announces that Jesus had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through the cross. My friends, worldly powers couldn't, uh, that worldly powers hurt him. They bruised his heel. He died, but he couldn't stay dead. And so he rose from the grave and he crushed Satan's head. And all worldly powers fell away in weakness as he rose in victory. Genesis 3.15 tells us all that was going to happen. And it did. (laughs) Jesus has now rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into his glorious kingdom. But that's not the end of the story. Oh, no, no. On the day of Pentecost, Jesus sent forth his Holy Spirit and his Holy Spirit gives power to the church to be Jesus' witnesses to the remotest part of the earth. Isaac Watts reflected on this and he put it in his hymn that we'll sing just a moment. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun doth its excessive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane nay more. The presence of the Holy Spirit is necessary because this conflict, this enmity still exists. And we need the Spirit's comforting power that we might see victory in our lives. Indeed, the hatred of Christ will not stop until he returns. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. 
The world will persecute you. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Ephesians 6 reminds us that the devil will fight you bitterly all the way to the end of the ages. That's, by the way, the message of Revelation. Revelation is simply a commentary on Genesis 3.15. But that announces for us Christ's victory. And as Christ wins, so we win. We are in warfare, my friends. And it seems irrational that the world should ever hate us. It was strange that the world hated Jesus. In John 15, verse 25, Jesus said that the world even hated him without cause. And indeed, look at all the things that he did that were good. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He gave sight to the blind. The, the, the lame were walking and leaping. He gave hope to the hopeless. He came to his own, but his own rejected him. And likewise, the world hates you, but its hatred of you is irrational. Look at all the good things the church has done throughout the ages. The church has built hospitals. It gave food to the poor. It helped the needy. It preached the gospel. It gave hope and peace to millions. It has done a, a plethora of good works. Yet does the world love the church? No, it hates us. Now, if you did all those good things in your own name, the world will love you. But do it in the name of Christ. They will treat you with derision and contempt because they hate him. I know a young woman, or, or she was a young woman, who became a Christian. And her father told her it was unnatural for her to spend her time in Bible studies and going to church all the time and told her that, that she needed to stop being so religious. He said to her, go out and get drunk. Go out and have sex. That's what teenagers do. Now, what would ever possess a father to give that kind of horrible advice to his daughter? Go out, get drunk, and have sex. It's because he hated Christ. And he stabbed at Christ by stabbing at Christ's saved daughter. He would rather throw his daughter to the wolves than to love Christ. And the ungodly would rather see us ruined by, by drinking and sleeping around rather than living peaceable, quiet lives. It's all illogical, isn't it? It makes no sense that they should hate us so, except Genesis 3.15. That's the world's reaction to God's people. And God himself set up this enmity. But even still, we're going to close right now with this. Romans chapter 16, in verse 29. My favorite benediction, this is a comforting word. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's a clear reference to Genesis 3.15. The promise of Genesis 3.15 is that Satan will be completely and totally vanquished. And that promise is held out to you. You, God's people, you will be brought into God's eternal realm of peace and joy. This is certain. This is secured because the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, has already crushed Satan under his feet. And now he's busy crushing Satan under your feet. That's what the book of Revelation will teach us. 
Now, my friends, listen, if you're not in Christ this morning, if you're here playing games, now is the time, today is the day for you to cast yourself upon Jesus. Because if you don't, you will be crushed with Satan under Jesus' feet. But if you come to him now, you will find in him life and power. Jesus, and he only, holds the key to life and freedom. Now let's pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning rejoicing that you are the fulfillment of the ancient promise given to Adam and Eve that it was held out all throughout the ages. We thank you, O great God, that you have been working in this world, bringing all things together for the fulfillment of this of this one promise. And we look forward to that day when Satan will be crushed under even our feet. We thank you, Lord, for this great victory that we have in Christ. We thank you, O Lord, that even now with all the persecutions and trials that we endure in this world, that we do so in victory. And this is the faith that conquers even our faith. Uh, this is the victory, Lord. We thank you for it. We ask, O Lord, that you would... Uh, Give to us the grace to share this hope with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, beloved, let's stand and uh, turn to.